art, innovation, and curation. The three tentpoles of the arts organization Pigment International. This is A Black Canvas, focusing on innovation in black culture with your host, Pigment International founder Patricia Andrews Keenan. Artist Carrie James Marshall has said, you have to demonstrate that black is richer than it appears to be, that it is not just darkness, but a color. Here on the Black Canvas podcast, we explore that richness with black artists, collectors, curators, and others in the black art ecosystem. Take a listen. Today's podcast is part of our programming for Black Fine Art Month. Held each October, Black Fine Art Month is a global celebration of the Black Fine Art aesthetic, an annual recognition of artists, innovators, collectors, curators, and those vested in the Black art tradition, and an opportunity to commemorate and elevate these contributions through art programming. The conversation you're about to hear centers on the role Black artists have in telling a more complete story of our country's history. NBC5 Chicago's Leanne Trotter is in conversation with artist, sculptor, and poet Gerald Griffin. Dr. Robert Hanser, Associate Professor of American History at Columbia College Chicago, and artist and activist Dwight White. It was recorded at the DeSable Museum of African American History, a Smithsonian affiliate. Their conversation is rich and insightful and further confirms that Black is the presence of all color. It's good to see everyone out here this evening. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us for this very, very important discussion. As Pat said, I am an art lover. Uh, I, I, I had to tell my family I was t I'm on an art diet because I have so many pieces of work works at home. Uh, and, then, and then I meet Gerald and I want to get some more. So, <laughs> But uh, let me uh, say that we have some esteemed panelists here and what I would like for each of them to do is to just give us a brief, tell us a little bit about yourself, just a little bit about yourself. And so what we will do is, um, but before I do that, I just want to say we've got some students in the house. We have students from Medill, we have some students from True Star Media, and also Columbia College, and we, we thank them for, for joining us. Let's give them a big round of applause, because it's important for the, for the students to really take up this issue, because it's a very important issue when you talk about what's happening in our community. And so now we will have our our panelists introduce themselves, and we'll start with Gerald Griffin, who is to my right. Hello, everyone. Um, I am Gerald Griffin, uh, Chicago artist, born and raised here, uh, product of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, art gallery owner. I'm a painter, a sculptor, and a writer. And um, been doing this for quite a number of years, coming up on 30, so. Uh, I think I'm getting the hang of it. And he has a beautiful studio on 82nd and... 82nd and Princeton. Princeton. Yes. Yes. Very nice. Thank you. We also have Dwight White II right here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dwight. Of course. Um, Dwight White, 
I um, attended Northwestern University, graduated from the School of Medill, so the students who are in the house, okay, I see a couple there. Um, <laughs> I have been a professional artist for the past six years. Um, started my career here in the city of Chicago and have, to, have had the opportunity to expand beyond as well. Um, it's truly a blessing every single day. Um, what I do is basically document history um, by utilizing my creativity. And so that's a little bit about me, my practice, um, and the style of art that I create and um, I call it spontaneous realism. Something that's very um, thoughtful. It's something that takes place very quickly. But at the end of the day, um, the goal is for people to connect with it emotionally. So it's a little bit about me and my art. And you have a piece uh, out in the courtyard. Yes, I, I do have a piece in the courtyard that was done during um, the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, again, very spontaneous out on the streets of Chicago. And it's really my contribution um, to the streets and to the community. And then I think in the pictures there, there's one of your pieces that's up on, is it Dearborn? Um, I believe there, there is one on different orders. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that piece is on Ida B. Wells. On Ida B. Wells. Mm -hmm. Okay, very nice. Very yeah. nice. Thank you so much. Of course. And last but not least, we have Professor Robert Hansard from Columbia College. How's it going? Uh, Professor Robert Hansard. Uh, let's see, I study West African and African American and what is called Atlantic history, if you've ever heard of this sort of approach where we look at West Africa, the Americas, and Europe sort of through a different lens. So that's been my approach. That's sort of what I've taught and researched and published, uh, you know, books and other things on. Um, I'm excited to be here to participate with these artists. Very nice. So let's start with the artwork that is surrounding us. And this particular piece is a Carol Walker exhibition. And it's called Presenting Negro Scenes Drawn Upon My Passage Through the South and Reconfigured for the Benefit of Enlightened Audiences Wherever Such May Be Found by Myself, Mrs. K.E.B. Walker Colored. And I'm going to ask um, Gerald to discuss this because his piece right behind us, the bust of uh, our Vice President Kamala Harris, and he's going to talk about both of the pieces of artwork. Gerald. Okay, um, I've been a um, I've been an admirer of Kara's work for a while. Um, thematically, uh, a lot of her work is in the same vein as mine in terms of um, utilizing these narratives of the past. Uh, from her standpoint, it's more of the you know, kind of this hurtful, stereotypical uh, images, um, kind of cartoonish images that um, our families and generations have become accustomed to seeing in the media and on and on, these portrayals of black history and kind of putting those on the forefront um, in silhouettes, which are almost like shadows. And I thought it was, you know, kind of ironic that the light on uh, my bust of, uh, Kamala Harris is actually casting a shadow on top of her silhouettes because my approach is more so um, using references from the past, from that hurtful past, and juxtaposing those with contemporary um, situations and ideas about who we are from an identity standpoint, from a, um, from a societal standpoint. So the series, um, a current series that I'm working on is called Our Historical Narratives. 
and it started from a, uh, a reaction to the uh, Black Lives Matter protest and the destruction of monuments, these hurtful monuments, and really the, the um, public lynching um, that we all witnessed, you know, nine minutes on, on uh, worldwide on TV. And the, the, um, the immediate reaction from people was, you know, a, a remembrance of this, um, of this oppression and lashing out and trying to um, uh, tear down those hurtful images that surround us. And I thought, what would be a, a creative social response to this situation? Um, our story is often untold in the public space. Uh, historically, it has been. And many of the romanticized monuments that we see are a skewed reality or partial reality of what history really was. But it is still a reference to what history was. And so when those things are taken away or destroyed completely, now not only is our story not there, their story is there's no story there. And we still don't have a voice. We still don't have a representation. So I decided to do this series of sculptures um, that would speak to that. And initially my idea was if you saw a romanticized sculpture of Thomas Jefferson. You know, he's known for the Declaration of Independence, a great president, statesman, but he also had another side. He was a slave owner. He had um, kids by a slave who he had, had relations with, who, he, who remained in slavery along with his, his, uh, his white kids. So there's a whole different um, idea of who this individual is, so we only see the one perspective and we don't get the other story. We don't get our history. Um, I thought that we could create some, uh, that I would create some monuments that next to that uh, two times life-size sculpture of Thomas Jefferson would be a sculpture of Sally Hemings and her children as well, juxtaposed within the same space. And now you're seeing a different side or the full story of Thomas Jefferson and it tells a different story. And it brings that, that history in full and for a contemporary audience who are struggling with a situation like um, George Floyd, it gives a reference, a historical reference as to why something like that can happen and why something like that still happens. Because there's a whole generation who may not be familiar with a lot of these figures that I'm speaking of, Sarah, Sally Hemsley or even Frederick Douglass. Um, his story is, um, is lightly told, but there's a, there's a whole history there that um, I think the youth can relate to because most of his, you know, his greatest achievements when he, was, when he was young, he was a runaway slave, he taught himself to read, he was an abolitionist. So my um, interpretation of Frederick Douglass is the young Frederick Douglass, not the gray-haired, you know, bearded, this young man who behind his back is holding a broken shackle and chains and in the front he's holding the lapel of his suit and it's showing that transition from the past to the present. But it also talks about how as a youth, his actions made a difference in the world. And just like those Black Lives Matters youth, their actions can make a difference in the world. And to see that in the public space, I think is beneficial to them. So I happen to know that you believe that the statues that have been taken down, you don't, you're, not a, you're not for that. You don't think that the statues should be taken down. Well, of course, I don't think the statues should be taken down.
because they tell a history. And although it's a hurtful history, uh, it's a history that we need to know. So there's, there's this saying, never forget, never forget. Uh, I talk to my Jewish friends, they say the Holocaust, never forget. You talk to people about 9-11, they say, you know, 9-11 was so hurtful, we'll never forget. When you talk to people about the transatlantic slave trade, they say, well, you know, why don't, why don't we forget about that? But we shouldn't forget that as well because we need to understand that, learn from that, and grow from that. So my series, Paradigm Shift, is understanding that paradigm, understanding this idea of um, this episode that happened within our collective uh, histories, mm -hmm. and then moving beyond that. Professor, do you agree that the statues that they have been toppling shouldn't be? Do you believe they should still stand? Yeah, I do. I, I like uh, what uh, Gerald is talking about in terms of this sort of uh, paradigm. And, and it even speaks to the Kara Walker stuff, if, if, if you've had the chance to look at it. Um, because there are images that, you know, they invite you to take them in a range of ways. They're literal to some degree. They want you to think about it euphemistically. They want you to think about it in terms of symbols, maybe. Just, just take them in. Uh, um, but, you know, you, you, she's speaking to some things. And that's why I think the, the images are very rough and raw. She's reminding us, um, as Gerald mentioned, about Jefferson and notes on the state of Virginia, where, where, where he can essentially say that he doesn't believe that black people could be, should be, have freedom, right? Uh, um, so the, the problems of that, uh, um, but there has to be a dialogue. There has to be, uh, and, and stuff like what, what is happening. Um, we, we looked at an example, we were talking about that Artnet article, um, where the artist made a sort of complimentary piece to counter what he saw um, was a problematic depiction of people. Um, this was in uh, San Francisco of, of a New Deal piece of uh, and it negative, the life of George Washington, it was called. And it negatively showed African-Americans and Native Americans together. And so the artist uh, um, in the 1930s initially presented it as a conversation in its own right relative to the New Deal and legacies of this sort of whitewashing of history. So then along comes someone in the 60s um, as part of uh, Oakland and the San Francisco, you know, the Black Panther movement comes along and looks at this art and said, I got something else to add to it. And he puts up the multi-ethnic heritage. So now today you get to 2021 and here are people saying, tear it down. But see, if you tear his down, um, you tear down the 60s artists too. So there's a piece around dialogue and dialogue that needs to be, to be had. Artists asking you to critically engage it uh, in, in that way. What do you think, Dwight? I mean, I think to both of the points that have been made, um, and specifically to the last point around dialogue, um, I think that's a significant point, um, especially when you think about you know, what public art can do, as Gerald mentioned. Um, it starts conversations, it allows people to share perspectives, and also allows for growth. Um, it all kind of starts with that initial point, and that point lives in history. Um, then we have opportunity in the present time to reshape narratives, retell stories, and hopefully change the future. And so that is a huge part of art. Um, art allows us to have that dialogue. It allows us to share those stories and allows us to uplift our people, specifically on the streets. And that's how a lot of my, me and my peers have been able to use street art. Um, it's something that lives in the neighborhood. It's something that um, people can respond to, share their perspectives, and ultimately um, you know, change systems. And so I think that's the true ultimate power of art and perspective. Do you think that we really need the monuments? I mean, when most of the monuments that we see around 
they were put up in the like 1800s, 1900s, most of them. It's a different time now. Do we really need to erect monuments like, like the ones that we already have, Professor? I mean, again, I, I think it's, the, the conversation's got to be there. But a dynamic conversation has to be there. I mean, the, the Balboa Monument was a, a, a gift from Mussolini, right? Um, and then you got, uh, you know, the Columbus Monument. And I know that there's close connections culturally there, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there have to be other reasons to build monuments besides war, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the success of uh, maybe sort of, if we want to say white supremacy to some degree, uh, um, by what the monuments are suggesting. There, there have to be other ways. Um, we, there have to be other sort of um, uh, uh, representations. And I think the dialogue piece is the best way. If you have a piece that's problematic and maybe has some history to it, allowing an artist or a group of folks to come and, and sort of resituate that piece, to me, I think is the most relevant way to go. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it's great to have uh, monuments and art pieces uh, within your community, but I think it's also paramount to have those within the main public square. So, so much of the art that is done by African-American artists, and that speaks to our history that's, you know, integral to the human, to the human story, is in black neighborhoods. So you go to a black neighborhood, you see a mural, you see a painting, you see a sculpture. But the, me going to the Art Institute and traveling around the world, um, traveling to different museums and, you know, the main public squares, there's always art that doesn't reflect me. That historical art and even the contemporary art. It doesn't speak to my sensibilities. It doesn't speak to me as a, so that sends a message to me and to my community that you don't belong in these spaces. You belong in that neighborhood. That's where you can go and feel comfortable and see a, a piece of art that talks to you and talks to you. But the public square should be the public square. Within our own particular neighborhoods and cultures, yeah, there'll be things that celebrate us and our history and our culture. But in the shared space, it should be shared representation. So I would love to see, um, just like you have the Columbus statue and the Thomas Jefferson and on and on and all these big monuments in the main public square, that there is a representation of African-American art, our history, our story, our narratives. DuSable, we're in the DuSable Museum, we're in a roundhouse. Um, DuSable was uh, a founder of Chicago. There's a, a bust of DuSable on the bridge uh, on uh, Michigan Avenue, which is small. And maybe a block down the street is a full life-size figure of Harry Carey. And what that says to me is, okay, in terms of importance, we look at size in terms of importance, right? This is a small building, that's a huge building. It, the Dosable uh, Monument is almost, if, if you weren't looking for it, you'd never even see it. There should be a two times life-size sculpture of DuSable in the park, in Grant Park, on Michigan Avenue, to speak to the contributions of black people to American history, to the uh, creation of Chicago, and on and on. So, what, so why is that? I mean... Well, those stories have been intentionally left out. I learned just part of this series, this series evolved from a series, uh, I, did, I had a solo museum show in, uh, in Indiana, Art Museum of Lafayette, for a series of works, a series of poems, started out as 30 poems, and then I did a visual interpretation of those poems in paintings or sculpture. And the title of the series was uh, Paradigm Shift. 
And it was about this idea of shifting our paradigm, shifting our consciousness about how we view ourselves, how we fit into society, deal with race and, and with ideas of race and ethnicity and identity. And um, while I was doing research for this, this series and working on some of the, the uh, figurative sculpture pieces, um, I came across this story about the Statue of Liberty and the history of the Statue of Liberty being it was a monument that was dedicated to the United States after the Emancipation Proclamation to signify America living up to its promise of equality and liberty and inclusion and, you know, emancipation. And, um, you know, it's been said that the original monument was of a black woman who had broken uh, manacles and, you know, shackles and chains at her feet. Did you all know that? Did you, who, who knew that? Okay, all right. And um, so I guess the, the, you know, the country didn't want that to be the lasting image of America. So the, the monument changed to Persephone. She's holding the light of truth, walking into the underworld. But the artist insisted that the sculpture would maintain the shackles and chains on its feet. So on the Statue of Liberty, it's broken shackles and chains under her drapery on her feet. It's on a two-story building, so you can't see it standing there uh, at, you know, at where the sculpture is. If you're far away, you know, most of the uh, I images I see are from far away, and you don't see it, but they're there. And so in this sculpture series I did, most of the figurative pieces feature this motif. You have a figure who's sitting on an American flag with a broken shackle and chains at her feet to signify the significance of black history to the Statue of Liberty. If I had learned that in grade school, that the Statue of Liberty had something to do with the history of black people in this country, that could change my perspective about how I feel about the Statue of Liberty and how I feel about the country. White kids don't know that story. Black kids don't know that story. They didn't Those are the histories in, and narratives that need to be told. I, I never knew that until you told me that. I, I did not know that. And it's sad that these are the kinds of things that we're not taught. And so how do we change that? How do we, you know, when, when the whole thing happened with George Floyd and the whole racial unreckoning, everybody was like, we got to change this. And how do we feel now? Do you feel like we're actually still changing things? Do you feel like there's still a momentum in that direction? And if there isn't, then what does that say for the art that we decide we're going to put up in our community? I mean, I think there is still momentum. I think people are still very energized. I feel like people are also very inspired to see how communities started to come together, right? Um, I think a lot of the conversations that unfortunately are being had here in 2021 um, are allowing us to think about arts differently, thinking about this movement differently, and also to the points that are being made, look at our past, and look what we've done before. Um, how do we utilize the tools and resources we have today um, to band together and continue this movement? Um, I think the George Floyd protest for a moment made everybody stop and think, um, but at the same time, there was a lot of emotion attached to that, right? There was a lot of anger, um, there was a lot of struggle, um, even if we wanna go into like our mental health what that could do for communities. Um, art is the thing not only that, you know, allows people to heal, but also, like I said, starts that narrative, starts to tell those stories. Um, and I think that's extremely important. 
um, for our community in order to keep the momentum going. You have to see it. Um, it has to be in plain sight. Um, the public has to be reminded consistently of what is taking place in the world. Um, and artists are a huge part of documenting that. I'm, I, I don't have the answer to this question, but um, when you see public art out there, I mean, how does it get there? Who decides which pieces are going to be in which neighborhoods, in which public squares? And when we're talking about telling the full story, do we even know how our voice can be heard? I know that after the Columbus statues were dismantled, uh, the city uh, convened a, a monuments uh, working group where they were discussing and looking at questionable monuments around town and what to do with it. And as far as I know, at this point, no decisions have been made. There were some public comments that people could, you know, make, talk about what they were interested in, but do we even really have a voice in this? I mean, to me, it seems like it's all about who has the money, Professor. Yeah, I think, as you rightfully say, the money plays. Um, it, it sort of forces maybe what is represented. That's, that has been the feature of the monuments and their selection um, going back to the 18th and 19th, 19th century. Um, it was who had money, who had resources, who had power um, that were in position to sort of say um, what, what we view and, and how we represent and remember history. Um, and, and I do think we have a voice. I think it's, it, I think it's been, I mean, things have been generating it. I mean, the Floyd and the issues that happened with George Floyd was just uh, the latest for many folks. Um, so it's just, uh, the, it's, it's great that it's erupting some now. And I think that that's part of the dynamic uh, of the dialogue. It's going to get rough and tumble. People are going to say things are overly political. We might miss the, the real history in some places, but that's why we got to be talking about it. So we can have a real dialogue so we can really engage it in the right sort of context. Um, but I, I, I think that as long as we're in a space where we're critically asking questions and thinking critically about our art, our, our experience, our culture, the thing's going, it's moving. Well, I was just going to say that um, personally, as an artist, um, while there are there are uh, there are entities in place who decide where artists, what art goes where, what's recognized, what's done, what isn't. Um, I'm of the mind to just do it. So um, what I mean is, uh, so I did a proposal, when I first had the idea for this, I, I did a proposal um, called Our Historical Narratives. I sent one to the mayor's office. I sent one to my state senator. And I was like, you know, Here's a way, okay, you, you, we're dealing with the National Guard and police going down, trying to surround and stop people from pulling down a monument. Here's a way that we can deal with um, our stories not being there. People are locked in their houses, COVID is going on, there's no jobs. Artists could be hired to create these monuments, put our stories out there, create a balance in those narratives, and that would address people feeling as if uh, they're being stepped on, which you know, George Floyd just brought to the forefront. And um, I waited for a response. I didn't get any response. So, um, and it was just written out. So I started doing the sculptures as maquettes. So I did, uh, the first one I did was Kamala Harris. And this was before she even uh, had the nomination uh, as a vice presidential candidate. I thought it was significant that this you know, this woman of uh, black and Indian heritage was running for president and she was a significant candidate who could possibly, you know, be chosen. And 
um, and she's, you know, uh, HBCU graduate, on and on and on. So I thought that her story speaks to kind of the evolution, this movement, this evolution of, of um, the black um, awakening movement in the, from the 60s, uh, how that has, you know, moved us forward to this point. And um, so I just started working on these pieces. And once they're there, they're, they exist. It's not an idea in my head. So whether or not, uh, and I have proposals to do funding for the two times life-size Obama piece that I did a maquette, um, you know, one-third life-size maquette of, I did a, a full bust of Frederick Douglass if those pieces don't get the funding from the city or whoever to be made, I'm gonna make them anyway. I'm gonna put them in a public space anyway. Because um, there was a time when uh, the black community, right after the emancipation, was segregated and not given support and not given anything to, to build. And yet, we, from nothing, they built, you know, um, they built T-Town. You know, they built Bronzeville. They built all of these different, you know, um, societies that were successful and growing, doctors and on and on and on. And um, the reaction was almost like the uh, January 6th reaction where people just came and, you know, bombed those places and, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma and tore those places down. And that spirit is still very much alive today. We're battling with it. It caused George Floyd. It caused the January 6th. It caused these things to take place. And it's something that um, I think still exists because we tend to ignore the elephant in a room. An elephant in a room being the, um, the continued oppression of the black community. And it's always kind of swept under the rug and it always comes to the surface. It's almost like a, a cyclical. And until we address some of these things, and we address them through art, we address them through conversation, we address them through um, dialogue, then they'll, they'll continue to haunt us. Those ghosts will continue to haunt us. We, we go ahead. Wait. Yeah, no, I was, I was just gonna say um, you know, some, some powerful words that you just presented there around just, just doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think for me as a young artist, one of the most inspiring moments that I saw, or even for myself, during the, during the pandemic and during the protests was starting to view the world a little bit differently, starting to understand that the city of Chicago was my gallery. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't waiting for the next gallery to give me permission exactly. to showcase my work or exhibit um, on a certain scale. Mm -hmm. um, the city, every single board I saw in the city, that became mine. Right. owned it because I had a message to share. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is such a, a powerful statement because a lot of times as artists, you have to wait for your next opportunity, or at least that's how we're taught. Exactly. Um, where, you know, during this time of sitting and thinking, you got to shape your own perspective all over again, mm -hmm. got to step out into the world and make the city your oyster. And so I was able to produce the most work I've ever done in my career. Mm -hmm. um, none of it that was intended to end up in galleries or yeah. um, didn't imagine it being mm -hmm. outside a DuSable. It was more so that, you know, understanding like, what's my role? Yeah. Um, how do I contribute 
to society, how do I contribute to the voice of the unheard? Mm -hmm. um, that is something that as artists, um, you know, we do have the opportunity to do and you do have an opportunity to leave a visual impact. Um, and a lot of those pieces that were going up on around the streets weren't even going to be permanent. Right. <laughs> um, right. But you knew that it had a purpose. Well, I mean, that's one reason why I try to work in time-tested uh, materials. So I work in oil paints because they're oil paintings from, you know, 15th century. I work in bronze because, you know, those, those lions in front of the Art Institute have been there for, you know, over a century. These pieces will outlive me and probably my children. I want to leave something that has a lasting impact that speaks to this idea that we were here. So I'm an artist. Um, I write, I sculpt, I paint, and it's as natural to me as breathing. So if someone said, okay, well, you know, I'll give you permission when to breathe, it, it doesn't work. I'm going to breathe all the time. I'm going to create all the time, whether or not it's with permission or not. I'm going to create these pieces. I'm going to have that dialogue. I feel it's important. The conversation is important, even more important than the finished work. What, what conversation does that finished work elicit? Uh, how does it speak to my generation and future generations, not only from our collective culture, but from the human family? And how do we, you know, how do we open up those dialogues and start to realize that we're more alike than we are different? Pigment International's Black Canvas podcast is sponsored by Sun Fun U Mediterranean Voyages. Join Sun Fun U for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning about the art and culture of the region, and playing in the sea. For a relaxing vacation a world away, visit sunfunu.com and sign up for a voyage next summer. So the, the title of this session is telling a full story of American history via public art. Mm -hmm. And I would like to ask each one of you, is that possible? Is it possible, Professor, to tell the full story? I think you, you begin the story. The story, uh, you know, art and aesthetic is part of how we can um, educate and think about this. Yes, I think as a historian, I would say you want to look closely at documents. You want to look at material. Um, you want to look at you know news, newspaper, what what have you. There's a range of ways you want to understand a moment in history and, and make sense of a past. But I, I think art helps people get engaged with more critical things. Um, they, 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 you know, um, and just imagine the images that we could put up that could get people to think more critically about about about, about things. You know, I mean, to me, you know, in the context of Haiti and things, Toussaint Louverture comes to mind to me. I mean, it just does. I mean, if you're talking about a counter narrative to the legacy of 1776 and all this stuff about the first uh, nation, remember what, what Toussaint Louverture did um, in uh, uh, 1793 um, in Haiti uh, uh, and how valuable and relevant that is. Think about that as a piece. Now, you can read about it. I mean, I could, there's great letters. He wrote letters uh, in the Jura Mountains when he was up there freezing when the French took him from Haiti. Um, he's got letters. But now how are you going to get someone who's new to engage in it? Right? It's the same way with Frederick Douglass. You, I mean, the young image of a Frederick Douglass, you, and all of a sudden, now you can see the fire in his eyes that, you know, Dr. Lerone Bennett talks about in Ebony. I mean, you see him. You can see him saying, agitate, 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 looking at you, you know, like, I'm serious. <laughs> uh, so so I, 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it can be told. I think it's, it, it's, it's a piece where educators, uh, members of, you know, city fathers, what have you, everybody's got to get engaged in the right kind of space in this conversation to make this uh, make sense and make it correct. Um, and I think we can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can. I think uh, historically uh, people always have. I mean, uh, I've had the question asked me, well, what, you know, what is, what's the importance of art? Why do we need art? And um, I think it's fundamental. It's fundamental to our development. It's fundamental to our understanding. Far back as you can remember in time, there's been art. You go to a, a prehistoric cave, you find a painting on the wall. That's how important art was to the development of people. So when you understand that and the importance of, and when I say art, I'm talking about all art, whether it's visual arts, performance art, it's important because it speaks to our mental and spiritual capacity. Beyond just the physical daily labors and relationships, it gets inside of our hearts, our minds, our spirits, and how we live and what life is about. I mean, those are some huge, huge subjects. Um, and artists continue to explore those and express those, whether it is um, you know, something that is recognized or not. So you, you think you think we can tell the full story? I think we can. I think we have told the full story. You think I mean, we I have would, told? I, I think that the full story has been told. It hasn't been displayed everywhere, but it's been told. I mean, you can go in remote places and find the story. It just isn't in, you know, the main public square. So my, my uh, hope is to have that story be added to the main public square. I could go to black neighborhoods in Harlem and in Chicago and the South, and you can, you know, you can find outsider art, you can see all kind of great art that talks about the culture and the struggle and the triumphs, but it isn't in the main square. Well, then it's not being told then. If it's nobody being, sees it, it's, it's not being, being told. This is being told to a limited audience, and how do we expand that audience? You know, the, the, uh, the antebellum um, romanticized uh, art pieces, those are being told in the main public square. So we know about those. We see those all the time. I mean, if you think about it, and it's, okay. So if you think about it, um, when you look at currency, all you really need to, to have is numbers to know this is a dollar, this is $100, this is $500, but there are paintings on currency, okay? And if I'm a little white kid and I'm looking at this dollar bill, this hundred dollar bill, I'm like, wow, that looks like my grandfather. This is valuable. It says to me that I'm valuable, which is, a, which is fine. But if I'm a little black kid and I'm looking at that, I don't look like my grandfather. What do I see in society that tells me I'm valuable? Something as simple as a Band-Aid. Band-Aids you put on your wound to camouflage your wound. But if band-aids are pink, how does that camouflage my wound? Psychological imagery, that's art, that's symbols, those are marks. Those are things that are in society that have reverberating effects upon all of us. And it's, it, it doesn't villainize anyone or victimize anyone. It's a situation that has a dual effect. So like I mentioned, for a young white kid, 
it's great. The entire world is about me. Everything is saying I'm great. So that makes me feel great. That makes me feel like I can be anything. That same image, that same society, that those same um, things that surround a black child is giving the opposite. That you're not important. That your hair uh, texture is not important. That you don't look, that these images, these antebellum caricatures are, uh, you know, you're a joke to be laughed at. And those hurtful images exist and they have a reverberating effect on us as people, but they affect other people too. They give them permission to negate you and say that you're less than. So the importance of art and the importance of telling the story and the importance of widening those perspectives, I think it's paramount. And if we as artists have support for that, it's a great thing. But I'm of the mind that even if I don't have support for it, that'll be the legacy that I leave uh, when I'm gone. Dwight, what is your hope for black art and black public art? Hmm. <laughs> My hope for black art and for black public art, um, for one, is to be in those spaces and places that do reach the masses um, so that you don't have to search too far to find out about your history. And so those that don't look like me um, or don't share the same stories as I do don't have to go completely out of their way either to find out about me. We walk, and like I think we said, we're one human race, right? So if we are all humans, we should all understand the dynamics of humanity. And so that's what I hope for, for, for art. Um, I'm, a, I'm initially from, from Texas. And um, the reason I fell in love with this city um, was because I found out more about myself here. Um, I found out more about my people here. Not that I didn't grow up around all black people in Texas, um, but what I did not have an understanding of or what I did not see I wasn't able to step foot in my communities and see art um, at scale. I wasn't able to go to the Bronzevilles of the world or the Hyde Parks of the world and see myself celebrated. Um, it was much different for me. And so that's what I hope public art does provide to the next generation of youth um, all over the world, <laughs> not just in a magnificent city like Chicago, right? Um, as, hard as, it, as hard as it is to make it as an artist, um, even in a city like Chicago, um, there's so many uh, more opportunities. There's so many people that are looking for um, a deeper understanding. Um, and so that's what I, I hope for, for public art, is to expand and to, for it to reach those places that almost feel like the untouchables and the impossible. Yeah. I just want to add one thing also. I think as a community, we have to almost demand that uh, our stories and narratives and our perspectives and our histories and our is, is part of that public. Because when you say public art, it's art that is supported by public dollars, tax dollars. We all pay taxes. We all, I mean, even people that are homeless pay sales taxes when they go and buy something. Everybody pays taxes. Everybody should have a voice in what's in the public square. So that means we need to be at the table. We need to be at the table. We need to be part of those decisions. Now, a private museum, you can't dictate what goes up in there. But a public park, a public street, the main square, there is a, a noticeable absence of us 
there's a notable absence of a lot of cultures, but there's a, there's a extreme notable absence of uh, African-Americans in those histories and those narratives within those spaces, and it should be. So how, how do we get at the table? Uh, you know, um, it's beyond just making, making noise. I mean, you know, the, the nonprofits, the follow ones that are going after foundation grant money and things, you know, that's, that's a simple way to start is, that, is to request resources that fund the right kinds of things. And you may say, well, that's, you know, <laughs> that's nothing. But I think everything counts, every step counts. And I think building off of what has been done counts. I think um, uh, talking to folks in, um, that are in political power throughout the city getting on them and having direct conversation, raising the right kind of inquiries with them about what is in neighborhoods and what is not there. I think we can start to push there. I think we can further and further make more, you know, sort raise the right kinds of questions in the right kinds of spaces. It is our public space. We do pay. It's our tax dollars. So why wouldn't we have a, a say there? And I think we, we, we can promote that. We can ask our representatives to engage with that very question. I think that's part of how we get this in the political space where people are really dealing with um, how do we fund public uh, um, spaces that represent the entirety of the populace. Absolutely. Um, and many of those organizations who you submit grants and you solicit, uh, the people who run those organizations and make those decisions, they don't look like us. They don't have the sensibilities to our stories and they may not you know, give you the same consideration that they do other artists. So how do we change that as well? You know, how do we become more uh, engaged in those, those situations? All right, uh, gonna wrap up and say thank you all for joining us. Uh, let's give a big round of applause. Gerald Griffin, Robert Hansard, and Dwight White. Thank you for giving us your perspective. Very, very needed. And Pat, you want to close it out? And please give Leanne a hand for moderating an amazing discussion. Um, as I said, I want to thank you guys for coming out. I want to thank the pigment team in the room. Uh, there's Simone, Nalani, Veronica, and they're waving in the back, so they've all been integral to making this day happen, so I want to give a thanks to them. I encourage you, okay. Uh, please look at the cards. As I said, we have other conversations this month. Uh, Joe Jones and his team in the back, Saran, are filming this. This will go up on our YouTube site. So if you pull up Pigment on YouTube, you'll, this conversation will go up once it's edited. I will tell you, we launched a conversation today that Gerald had with Haki Mabuti, if anybody's familiar with Third World Press in the room. And so I set that to launch on October 1st. So if you go to our Pigment INTL YouTube, you will see that conversation and this one will be up as well in a couple of weeks. But um, we thank you for being here. Uh, we are very appreciative of the students that came. If any of you want to talk to any of the artists for the stories you're doing, we appreciate that. And I'm sure they would love to talk to you as well. So have a wonderful evening. The original theme music for this podcast has been provided by contemporary jazz and R&B musician Reed. Thank you to Reed, our production partner, Rivet360, and sponsor, Sun Fun You, Mediterranean Voyages, for making this podcast possible.